if you want to get something done, especially with a major supplier country like Australia, you're going to have to find a better way to do it than threats and attempt at intimidation. You're listening to the USSC Briefing Room, a podcast from the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, where we give you a seat at the table for a USSC briefing on the latest developments in US news and foreign policy. We'll cover what you need to know and what's beneath the surface of the news. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are on, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and future. Hello, I'm Jared Monchine, Director of Research at the U.S. Study Center, and I am personally very excited to welcome today's guest, Dan Rosen. Dan is a partner at Rhodium Group and a former White House National Economic Council and National Security Council staffer. He's also a visiting fellow with U.S. Study Center this week, so it's great to get a chance to sit down with him and get a readout from one of the leading experts on the Chinese economy, both in the U.S. and globally. So, Dan, welcome to the show. Before I get to the many questions I have for you, I just want to mention that at the end of the episode, we're going to ask you to share your favorite fact, number, or statistic related to either the Chinese economy, U.S.-China trade, or the economic environment we find ourselves in. And uh, if you're ready to go, let's get started. So, firstly, I thought maybe I could just get your take on sort of the current play of where U.S., China, and Australia find themselves in economically. So, you know, there's discussions of a new Cold War, economic Coupling, de-risking, de-globalization. What, what do you think is the best way to sort of think about the economic situation we find ourselves in today? Yeah, thank you, Jared. And it's great to um, join you for this. So uh, seen through an economist's um, eyes, I think the most salient thing to bear in mind about the U.S., China, and, and Australia as well, a uh, set of relationships here, is that we are in the post-pandemic phase of global economic activity. We had unusual patterns uh, that described our trade and investment with one another that had everything to do with the way that big parts of the world economy were shut down, distorted, you know, under pressure from the extraordinary um, forces at work in the pandemic. And now we're six months, seven months past the end of the acute phase of that in China, once it went ahead and ripped the mandate off and decided to just um, suffer through uh, COVID without really properly vaccinating its people. And so this is the moment where the test, where we see what the new normal is going to be in a post-pandemic environment. Is it going to look like things looked prior to the pandemic? Um, or is it going to be very different? And I would say that right now, almost in real time this week, we're starting to get the first definitive evidence of, uh, of where, where things are headed. Great. And so in terms of the uh, play in this post-pandemic world, how do you think the U.S. and its allies, you know, in particular part, handling this post-pandemic world and as well as sort of the broader strategic challenges that China has been posing? Yeah. So I think... Um, what we have had so far this year is sort of the the um, the overture to the symphony, if you will. Folks have been in a waiting and a holding pattern, kind of hoping that the economic picture. Well, I'm, when I say folks, I mean uh, 
the Australian perspective, based on my sense of it, um, folks have been working with the assumption that, you know, until we see otherwise, let's assume that China's economy is going to come back to its pre-pandemic, you know, supercharged role for us, which means some of the strongest growth in the world, especially important consumer of building materials, right? Which um, is a core part of Australia's endowment resources, big part of the economic growth here. And hence the whole kind of Australian challenge of having the United States as the strongest security partner, but China as the strongest economic partner, right? Um, very you know, particular position to be in is kind of predicated on Chinese growth as we've known it for the past couple of decades. And where we are right now in the economic conversation in the markets is that as of June 2023, the recovery of China's economy and the return to those sort of patterns of demand for what Australia is selling that we expected before the pandemic are faltering. And there are some lights that are blaring red right now, not even yellow, but red, that we need to put our seatbelts on. China's economy is going to have very, very stormy waters in the second half of the year. Um, if that is the case, and, it's, and if especially it's not just a temporary blip or a hiccup, but instead kind of structural slowdown in the pace of, uh, of Chinese growth, especially the property sector which is where so much of that iron ore goes to, then it means we really are in a new era. And it's going to take some time to work out what the implications of that are for uh, Australian exports, uh, you know, overall health and performance of some of the biggest companies in the country, and also the relative attraction of what's now happening in the U.S. economy relative to what's happening in the Chinese economy. It's not to say that China is not going to be a super important, really big uh, economy out there, very important to Australia. But it is to say that a lot of the change at the margin, the growth that was expected to continue to pull more of the economic energy uh, toward Beijing may, in fact, be overestimated. And we're talking about a somewhat different mix of opportunities for Australia going forward. Could you maybe go a bit deeper on that? Do you, do you think that uh, China is ever going to um, return to anything close to what they had pre-pandemic? Uh, well, I mean, it's really the pre-pandemic. Well, yeah, you could say the pandemic or pre-pandemic especially, right? But look, I mean, um, uh, 20 years ago, China was woefully underbuilt in terms of property, commercial property, residential property, for example. The past two decades have been a torrid pace of build-out. Really extraordinary. No limits on the amount of financing and debt that were available to property developers uh, to get to work and do that. And that happened. <laughs> and China has an absolutely massive property stock now. That is not going to happen again. There's not another need to build from scratch this just gigantic stock of residential and commercial property in China. There's still a lot of work to be done to upgrade property over time. There's always the stuff that was built 20, 30, 40 years ago where it's time to, to renovate, expand, um, build out, et cetera. So you know, there's gonna be continue to be a good solid base load 
of property-related, infrastructure-related activity in China, but the property boom is not going to happen again. There are some things that haven't happened yet, which could still um, take place. Um, For example, China is pretty seriously short on hospitals and schools throughout the rural side of the economy. And those will also need a lot of cement, plate glass, aluminum, steel, stuff like that, copper piping. So that's, you know, a big uh, unfinished business um, that still stands in front of us. And then China, like so many countries in the world, are going to have to divert a huge amount of their effort to climate adaptation and consider in particular that the wealthiest, most productive, most impressive cities in China are all on the coast, are all in the floodplain uh, of the coast. And there are tremendous uh, sea level uh, challenges uh, that China faces uh, as they deal with uh, tidal surge and uh, rising sea levels uh, in the decades ahead. So, you know, it's hard to even imagine the extent of seawalls that are going to have to be built, a lot of metal involved, a lot of concrete and stone involved um, to do necessary work to protect China as we know it uh, from the climate stress that we have standing before us. One thing that I'd love to hear your thoughts on is in terms of those, those Australian exports to China, why did China seemingly change tack with the Albanese government? What, what exactly is, is China doing with their sort of easing of those restrictions on, on Australian imports into uh, China? And, uh, you know, is this, is China changing tack or is this something where they just have a hard economic reality and they have no choice? Yeah. Well, so, you know, pretty much everything we do at Rhodium is uh, economic analysis where we can find the data to offer a strong uh, statement or point of view. Um, we do so. And we, um, we, uh, we're very straight shooters about that. On the question of why and how the uh, China's commercial diplomacy vis-a-vis Australia is evolving, you know, I can't point to any particular data stream that will help me answer that. But I can offer you a few observations based on what I know that shed a little light on this question. Um, the first is that um, whatever uh, goals China has had in applying, shall we say, coercive measures, whether they're trade protections or you know bans on key exports. Uh, and things like that um, to market economies around the world, that hasn't changed the general tendency in the market economy world. (laughs) Um, The concerns that um, countries from North America to Europe to democratic market-oriented Asia have about the challenges presented by the way the Chinese system works those concerns have just gotten more intense, more expressed, and there's more and more cooperation among market economies to talk about what's the right way to have a conversation with Beijing about legitimate concerns and interests that we have. So I guess whatever Beijing you know, would consider using a kind of strong arm toolbox to try to accomplish, I don't 
I can't imagine how folks in Beijing feel as though, you know, it was really working <laughs> the way that they would like. And so it may be just, you know, uh, an acknowledgement that if you want to get something done, uh, especially with a major supplier country like Australia, you're going to have to find a better way to do it than threats and, uh, and tempted uh, intimidation, number one. Number two, whatever China's sense of its own leverage and strength in the sort of economic league tables was when a course of measures were first introduced a couple of years ago, its position is somewhat weaker now for the reasons we talked about before. I mean, there are really profound basic macroeconomic challenges that China is now dealing with. And, you know, all things being equal, it probably wants to consider de-escalating where it can on the external side so it can focus on its domestic problems. Um, I can't say for sure that that's what the conversation sounds like in Beijing, um, but I would certainly be advising um, to, you know, uh, reduce tensions where I could if I were advising the Chinese leadership so I could focus on the homegrown economic problems that are becoming so very acute right now. But then finally, before we turn the page to the next question, Jared, I would point out that um, at present, this notion of um, uh, uh, of China and Australia having thaw is still you know, an assumption, it's not a done deal. Um, barley, wine uh, tariffs um, have not been completely disassembled yet. There are a number of Australian citizens, I believe, that are still uh, under extraordinary detention in China, which should be, um, you know, reason for real concern uh, about what the relationship is all about and how we behave with our partners out there, right? So, you know, I hope um, that China and uh, Many uh, other countries are able to find their way forward to uh, uh, a more constructive, pragmatic resolution of problems. Really, I would just encourage Australians to keep in mind that, uh, that China needs friends out here in the world um, at least as much as, as you do. Don't forget that. Great. Now, speaking of uh, advising, you, you have, uh, you're not advising Beijing, but you do regularly advise lots of powerful folks around the world and have just come off a whirlwind tour of Sydney and Canberra and other other cities. And you also obviously know DC exceedingly well. So I'd love to know, as someone who has spent so much time, both personally and professionally, Australia and the US, what, what would you advise Canberra in terms of approaching this this new reality, economic reality they're, they're in? And how would that differ from what you would advise uh, uh, Washington? Um, that's a great question. Um, and um, well, I, I will I, I will note that we get calls at Rhodium from uh, Ministry of Commerce staff with the Chinese government on a regular basis, and we're always happy to talk to them. Always happy to share data. So while we don't have a formal <laughs> advisory relationship for sure, we, uh, we 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 make ourselves available to anybody who wants to have a serious conversation about what's happening uh, in the economy, and that certainly includes. Uh, friends and officials in Beijing, um, crucial part of the, the process and conversation for us. As for what I would have to offer Canberra, different from what I would have to offer Washington or Brussels or Berlin or something, uh, someone else, you know, I, the most important things that I had to share this week 
are really the same um, as I think governments elsewhere need to hear. There are sort of um, embedded assumptions about what's possible and what's not with China. Even very senior officials in the U.S. Um, have tended to discount the possibility that China's economy could slow down, for example. Um, certainly in Europe, that was deeply rooted working assumption right up until very recently. And across all these geographies, and certainly here in Australia as well, there now is kind of new open-mindedness and, and sense of necessity to catch up on whatever folks in the commodities markets, exchange rate markets, et cetera, seem to be getting panicky about right now. Um, uh, so the conversation is changing very quickly. Um, uh, folks in, in, uh, in government sectors kind of everywhere are checking to make sure their, their basic assumptions about the macroeconomic outlook are up to date uh, and well-founded. And um, really that, that, that was my, my biggest uh, objective in coming down here to make sure that those observations, the analysis that backstops that um, was, uh, was offered and shared with, uh, with folks here in Canberra. The one exception, well, not exception, but the distinct uh, kind of uh, observation for leaders and businesses and the general public here in Australia, really, is that if Australia was the sort of standout beneficiary of China's long super cycle of industrial property and materials heavy growth for the past two or three decades, Unfortunately, that necessarily means that it'll take kind of one of the heaviest hits um, to the to the economic outlook um, once China really does step down from, say, uh, an assumption of five or six percent GDP growth down to something like maybe call it a three percent, maybe four at best in some years ahead kind of GDP growth rate. Nobody's going to feel that really as much as Australia because nobody was benefiting as much from the growth in the past. That, that's something that I think uh, folks here have long been aware of and have been happy to, to, uh, to, to bear the burden of that problem that, you know, because they benefit so much, therefore someday it'll, that they're going to have the most to say goodbye to um, when the new era comes. However, you know, there's a lot of good news for Australia too. Very strong cards to play. Unlike a number of uh, many other uh, advanced economy economies, even here in Asia, like South Korea and Japan, there is not a big Australian technology supply chain connection with China. And um, as you probably observed, the countries that have some of the most high-tech uh, cross-border linkages to China are under the most pressure to sever those. And that's a separate and, and different kind of economic pain and discomfort which Australia doesn't really have to worry too much about because that's just not the nature of, of the Australian economy. It's not really a high-tech play. It's this uh, uh, very much high-quality foodstuffs and uh, uh, materials uh, play. Down the road, extraordinary opportunities to be part of the global renewable energy uh, and clean energy um, economy of the future. So there's some good replacement options that are, were also worth talking to your uh, your colleagues and official them in Canberra. Yeah, those are some thoughts on on what the conversations have been like. Awesome. Um, well, you, you talked about the importance of, of 
having their their sort of view of the of the issues at hand back by data. And w- one thing I that I have to ask is personal perspectives. I came here over half a decade ago, and my first report was on the U.S. Australian investment relationship and how there's more uh, investment from the U.S. in Australia than any other nation. And Australia invests in the uh, U.S. more than any other nation. Despite that, only 17% of Australians in our polling could correctly say that it was the U.S. who was the largest investor to uh, Australia. And 71% thought that it was uh, China who was the largest investor. Do you think it's a problem that Australians don't know who their largest investment partner is? I think it can be a problem because not just here in Australia, but uh, all around the world, really. And I would say, for example, in Sweden, France and Germany and Europe and in uh, Japan and South Korea and Southeast Asia and even in the United States, there tends to be a kind of deeply ingrained assumption that China is a 10 foot tall uh, player. Um, Whereas the reality, as you just noted, is that they're really starting at a much lower base of involvement in the global economy, including here in Australia. And so in most industries and regards, um, they're not nearly as important force today as other incumbent economies such as the United States are. A lot of the popular perception of China is sort of an extrapolation of what people think China will be in 10 years. And, you know, at the mark, while the U.S. may be the largest investor in Australia historically in terms of the stock of investment, at the margin in recent years, there's definitely been years where China was the biggest annual investor. And then if we look at some industries in particular, China's definitely overweight, you know, in mineral sector investment, for example, among foreign majors uh, participating here in some in some areas, right? And so kind of that brings us back to the top of our conversation again about whether the Chinese model, as we've known it, is going to be sustained into the future. Or, you know, you could say, like Japan to some extent in the 1990s, the way China managed to grow so much, using so much debt, so much government influence over the system, necessarily means that they're going to sort of fall off the charts for a while. And not reach that, you know, superpowered weight in our economic equations that the popular perception that you cite in your surveys suggests people kind of take for granted is an inevitability. In other words, to kind of boil it down to a bumper sticker, um, China's continued rise is far from inevitable. And the sometimes disappointing, sometimes bumpy, participation with other market economies like the United States may not be as dramatic in recent years, but in the long run has a lot better track record for, you know, remaining valuable and um, important to Australian interests, I would say. Excellent. Where do you think China's economy will be in five years from now? Look into your crystal ball. Love to hear your thoughts on some predictions. Yeah, let me answer it this way. I think uh, in five years, I think the odds are China will either have 
acknowledged this year in 2023 that it has a huge amount of economic reform to do, and it will start a reform process that means extremely low growth and tough going for the next two years. But then by the time we get five years out, they're back on track. And we're talking again about a China that can get to its potential, which might be like a 4% growth rate uh, when, we're, when we're looking out at like 2028 or so, if that's what you're kind of asking about there. Alternatively, if all we see out of Beijing this year is more assurances that the party has this figured out and there will be a you know, policy uh, program that is going to prevent all these adjustments and more of this kind of state approach, then I think we might see you know, a little bit stronger growth for this year and next year. But beyond that, when we get five years out, we're really going to be talking about a China that's stuck in very low gear, one, two, three percent most. Wow, that's uh, quite a departure from what we're accustomed to. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, we want to talk about a fact, stat, or number that you think we should know. Um, so, can you tell me what you chose? So, okay, so um, favorite number game. Rhodium work done over the past year has shown that both for Europe and for the United States, uh, about 80% of all the foreign direct investment we're respectively sending into China is being done by a mere 10 companies or fewer. So basically, only a few really big players um, are still up to the challenges of trying to put more resources to work in China. And uh, that's a huge contrast with uh, a few years ago when you know literally hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of firms from Europe and the US were um, were moving in establishing a presence looking forward to being part of the the future growth in China now it's just just a few giants that are still uh contemplating the challenge fantastic thank you so much Dan it was such a pleasure to have you both in Australia as well as on this podcast I was really looking forward to uh, today's conversation, and you definitely did not disappoint. So thanks so much, Dan. You're welcome. It's great to be with you. As we wrap up, I'd like to point out a couple of other podcasts that made the events. We have our Technology and Security Podcast, TS, run by Dr. Mia Hammond-Harry, USC's Director of Emerging Technology. We also have our USC Live series that runs recordings from our major live events. Recent episodes have included our interview with former U.S. Ambassador to Australia, John Ferry, as well as our researcher response to the AUKUS report and our panel discussion with past of Hamilton, Australia. You can find these on our website, usc.edu.au, or wherever you get your podcast.